2020 will go down in history as not only the year of the COVID-19 pandemic, but also as a year of racial reckoning. Reporting from her hometown in Iowa, just a few hours from Minneapolis, where George Floyd was killed at the hands of police, sparking global protests, journalist Donna Cleveland grapples with the state of racism, specifically in the Midwest. While Midwesterners, I would know I was born and raised in the Midwest, are known for being neighborly with slogans like, Iowa nice, Donna discovers a history of racist policies that still live on today and that make the Midwest one of the worst places for people of color to live in the United States. If you want to learn more about the unique and challenging experiences facing people of color in the Midwest, this podcast is a great place to start. This episode is the season one finale of Thread the Needle, an indie feminist podcast that explores the meeting place between feminist ideals and the realities of women's lives. You can listen to Thread the Needle on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, so before we start the show, I want to ask you all a favor. We're going to do a new segment on the podcast that we plan on launching in the next couple weeks, and it involves you, our beloved listeners and community. It's called I Plucked Up. All you need to do is send me a voice memo or recording of your most recent or biggest pluck up and how you got out of it or what you learned from it. It can be serious or funny. It can be from yesterday or from sometime in your past. I'd really love to read some of your pluck ups on the show so that we can inspire others with your story, mindset, and twists and turns along the way. This is going to be really fun. So send your voice message on Anchor or email me at liz at lizbohannon.co. Links to join the segment are on our show notes. I am so excited to hear from you all. All right, now let's get on with the show. You're listening to Plucking Up, a podcast that shares uninhibited conversations with celebrated authors, entrepreneurs, artists, and leaders about their pluck-ups and how they moved on and up to keep creating and inspiring others to build lives of purpose, passion, and impact. I'm your host, Liz Bohannon. You know, after 20-ish episodes of the Plucking Up podcast, I have built this overflowing well of wisdom that exists now in my head from these incredible conversations with these incredible guests. And I hope that you've been on the receiving end of that wisdom well as well. (laughs) That sounds funny. Um, Today's guest, Janice Bryant-Howroyd, is no exception. She is the founder and CEO of the Act One Group, an award-winning company in the human resources industry. The Act One Group is a cool multi-billion dollar business that she started with about $1,500 in savings. 
But you know Janice is more than just an incredible businesswoman with tons of accolades and accomplishments under her belt. She has lived this phenomenal life. And in this episode, she's going to talk to us about living in this Bible-based community in the Deep South, this incredible supportive environment that her parents created for her and her 10 other siblings. And we're also going to deep dive into her childhood experience of being the only student of color to integrate at an all-white school in the 11th grade. And she's going to tell us why she calls it the worst year of her life. She's also going to share her story of leaving North Carolina out to the big city of LA and the successes that she was able to build from the ground up. Finally, we'll also hear from Janice about a moment that she really felt like she was putting these really negative narratives about herself into the universe. And she'll share who ultimately gave her the encouragement that she really needed. Janice, thank you so much for being here on the show. I'm so excited to have you. Oh, you know what? Liz, I've been looking forward to this. In the midst of COVID with so much going on, you think, wow, why do I need to do another podcast? (laughs) But the work you're doing and the stories you're sharing are just so incredible. I happen to be a fan. So I'm really excited for us to have a chance to chat as well. And that's one of the things I like is that you're a chat. So Thank you for bringing me outside of what is really no weekend weeks right now. (laughs) Oh my gosh. You just in that 10 seconds, I have a huge smile on my face. I sense your energy and your presence. And I'm so grateful that our guests and our listeners are going to get to uh, benefit from that as well. So for those in our community who aren't familiar with you and your work, can you kind of just give us the quick like bio headline of who you are today? Always so happy to share about that. Okay. Now, who I am and what I do do have a very good place where they merge, but they are not always the same as well. So that's good. Yeah. Okay. So I'm Janice Bryant Halroyd. And I say that emphatically because, Liz, you know, I (laughs) actually, it was probably a couple of weeks ago, I was just sharing with someone that it took me well until within the last six or so years to identify myself more as a Janice than as a Bryant. And so who I am today, when you ask who I am today, today I am definitely the Janice that I wanted to be. Had you asked me that six years ago, I would have said, oh, I'm part of the Bryant family and you got to know who we are. And Mm. I'm not lost that. I just embrace that there's a Janice in there somewhere. What's that Janice doing right now? She's leading a multi-billion dollar organization that uh, does work across the globe in human resources. Basically, we provide the technology platforms that iteratively grow as the need and the opportunity occurs for us to make sure we keep the thing we care about most, which is the worker, that we keep them at center of our universe. So I'm doing that through a company called the Act One Group. And within Act One Group, I've already mentioned two services to you, Liz. One is how we work in the technology and the process and protocols arena through Agile One. And the other, many of your listeners may not know me, but they may know my company, Apple One. Some of them likely have gone into Apple One branches pre-COVID and gotten jobs. And many are Mm. going to Apple One today to get work virtually. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's so amazing. 
You are a founder. You are a CEO. And I'm, I'm just also gonna... a daughter, a mom, a daughter, a, sister, a mom, all of the things. Fabulous black woman. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to dive into all of that. I am so excited and to even go back a little bit to the beginning. But I just wanted to reiterate not that your value is at all tied up in this number, but I do just want to reiterate to everybody that she said that she runs a billion dollar organization. Okay. I said so, multi-billion, mul- but that's okay. <laughs> we won't, hey, look, look, we won't deal in the data today. We're having fun and a conversation. I left the oh, sheets at the desk. Okay. That is so good. Janice, if there's anything that brings joy to my heart, it is being corrected by another woman saying, no, it is multi-billion dollar. Thank you very much. That is so good. <laughs> Well, let's rewind a little bit. Before you founded this company, before you gained all of this passion and this expertise that has led you to this place, let's rewind as far back as you are willing to take us and tell us about your childhood. Tell us about what you were like as a little girl. What were the kind of earliest maybe signs or inklings in hindsight that you could see about who you were as a kid that align a little bit with this passion and this purpose that you've built throughout your life? That last part of your question is really where you redirected my answer. Because as I was listening to you (laughs) and talking about me being a little girl as far back as I can remember, I heard you lean in on that far, like, okay, this is an old lady I'm talking with. Maybe she can't go back that far. <laughs> but um, but Liz, uh, here's the thing. Your last part of your question and how that relates to who I am today. So you get a totally different answer than I would have given All right. you differently. Uh, Let's go there. Uh, what I can tell you how it relates today is, and I'm happy to share my childhood with you as well, but I do want to be respectful. You're asking, what about my childhood aligned with how I work today? And that would be dynamically the way my mom and my dad cooperated with each other Mm. and how they ran a home is very much what I've taken into how I built a business. And some of it was, you know, intuitive, kind of inherent in how I was brought up. And then later, I must say much later than probably it should have been, it became deliberate to look back on how they did things and how we do things and realize that those incredible people have processes and protocols that were so dynamic to how we were able to be a successful family. You think about it, Liz, if you want me to go back, go back, okay? 11 kids, one mom, one dad in a very Bible-based community in the deep South. Okay, don't get Mm. your violin out. There's nothing to cry about here. There was a lot to cry about then, but retrospectively, I realized that was a lot of what made me who I am as well. Mm. But the important thing is that our parents were so engaged in how we were brought up that... um, I wouldn't say, it's not fair to say they insulated us from the social and economic prejudices that we lived in, in a very racially segregated community. I mean, the line was hard between black and white, and I don't recall ever seeing any other ethnicity growing up uh, in my hometown of Tarboro than black or white, and I saw white from a distance. I was 12 years old before I touched the hand of a white person. Mm. I was also 12 before I rode in a car, so if that gives you an idea. However, 
at risk of painting a very Norman Rockwellian picture of my upbringing, I have to tell you, our parents were realists. They let us know what the world was like mm. out there. Out there didn't just mean across Panola Street where the white folks live. It also meant across from North Carolina where other people from the world lived in the United States. Mm. Um, they made that clear for us. They also made it clear for us that we were born with full capacity and the right to expectation. Mm. In my company, I teach and very often when I speak, I'll have people recite, I have everything I need to be everything I need to be. That's the kind of stuff I grew up with as a little girl. Wow. So even though immediately around me, it was hardcore segregation. I didn't know we were poor till I went to university and I wasn't dumb. Mom and dad just created an atmosphere for us of abundance. Dad would always tell us, if you got one thing more than you need, you're living in abundance. Bring mm. gratitude to that, you know? And so that's how we were brought up. Looking back on it, those two people, John and Elretha, invested a lot in us and they invested a lot of hope in who America is, mm. where they were raising us. Um, Dad had served in Korea. He'd seen a bit of the world. But you're basically talking about two people who got married very young and mm. who decided to have 11 kids. We never had a day of public assistance in our life. I don't uh -huh. say that to applaud mom and dad. I say that to clarify for your listening audience mm. that you're not listening to someone who, because she was one of 11 kids in the Deep South at the time I grew up, had any access to anything other than the labor and the outcome of mom and dad. And we didn't feel that we were lacking because of it. Mom and dad may have felt it from time to time in their private conversations, yeah. but in our family, they taught us the value of things. They taught us that one person's trash is another person's treasure. We never had anything to throw away, but we always had something to share. Wow, that is so rich. I feel like we could spend the rest of this podcast probably talking about your parents and how they managed to strike that balance of creating not a bubble. I feel like bubble has such a negative connotation, but creating a world for your children of empowerment, of safety, of possibility. And I think they did it, Liz, because they were really clear about what we would see when we went into the world. Yeah. Not one of us went out there not knowing what was going to be there. I mean, you're talking to somebody who mom used to make games for us of cutting cardboard to the exact shape and size of our shoes to cover the holes in them. But we didn't feel like that was an act of poverty. We thought it was ingenuity. Do you get what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah, it's totally the mindset of like the opportunity that is in there. But I and think you had to cut them perfect. Yeah. <laughs> But I think what's really interesting and what I would love to know is that, you know, they created this amazing world for you, but it sounds like they also did not shield you from the realities of injustice and from the realities of inequality and of the outside world. And so I'm curious about how they did that. How did they paint a picture of kind of like, here's the real world and here's the challenges that you're going to face um, while also maintaining kind of that like childhood that they were able to create for you? Well, you see, we grew up and if any of your listeners happen to come from hoods like mine, they'll be able to finish this sentence. We grew up in a mindset of it's not what they call you. 
it's what you answer to. Mm. And so they taught us that when we stepped out into the world, they knew their children were African-Americans. Now, one mom, one dad, we come in all shades and colors, hair types, you know, heights and shapes, okay? But we're all Bryants, okay? And they taught us that it was how we identified ourselves that we should label. Little lessons even. I mean, I can recall, Liz, and I haven't thought about this for some time now, but I can recall when friends would come over and our mom and dad would remind us, your friends are going to treat your home the way they see you treat it. So if you want them leaving mm. glasses sitting on tables, leave yours. If you don't, get up and invite them to walk with you to take the glass back to the kitchen. Just simple mm. lessons like that. Yeah. Dad also extended that same mindset to his daughters when he taught us that men are going to treat you the way they see you treat yourself. Mm. And if you allow with a giggle behavior that you don't want to move forward, then you're going to have to stamp it down now. And mm. if a man ever steps outside of how you expect to be treated, then you step outside of that man. He also told us, let me know and I'll take care of it. But that was how dad was. Now, that wasn't at all a sexist answer that his daughters couldn't take care of themselves. That was more a parent saying to young girls, you have the right to be whole and you have an expectation for yourself that other people should respect. And how you allow people to see you is how very often they will treat you. If people see you cry and they want a tear, they'll do the things to motivate tears. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing, though, that they did, and I think this is really important about our community at large that I grew up in, is that we were a Bible-based community. And so, so much of what we grew up learning was faith-based. And here's the interesting mm. thing. Mom's biggest thing she taught all of us, and we talk on Sunday Zoom, our sibling uh, Sunday, we mm. talk about that even now. Most of us have gone out to different places in the world and achieved different things. And then we come and we nest together by Zoom on Sundays uh, instead of the Sunday dinners at the table. Um, but Mom always taught us it was so important as part of our Christian character to embrace people who came from other beliefs. Mm. And I was sharing this recently as well. There's an old vinyl. I don't know if you're familiar with vinyl. We used to call them albums back in the days or LPs, long playing discs, right? Um, And I got a lot of them in my attic, girl. Uh, (laughs) Look, the sleeves they're in, those those album covers are probably worth more than the music that I bought back then, (laughs) unless you happen to love the music like I do. But there's one particular one that helps me to kind of capture for you what I'm talking about mom's perspective of Christianity was and how that prepared us for the world when we would step out. There's a guy named Andre Crouch. Andre Crouch put out a vinyl called Take Me Back. And one of the songs on that vinyl, he introduced the music with a message that basically put religion is a search for God. Faith is a relationship with God. Hmm. And A lot of Christians may embrace that and some may take issue with that. But Mm. growing up in the Deep South, mom taught us in the face of a lot of staunch old school religion that we know what our values are 
and the greatest amongst them is to respect other people's values Mm, and that we all can live together and we can all work together. And that was what she believed to her core. My mom is alive to this day. She's going to listen to your podcast. So I speak with reverence about what my mom said. I also speak correctly because she will correct me if I got it wrong. (laughs) that so much. Well, if she is indeed listening, not that she's waiting for anybody's approval, it sounds like, but I approve of that message. What a beautiful spirit. And it's hard for me not to imagine what the world would look like if more Christians didn't hold that as their kind of core belief and teach and raise and train their children with that at the forefront. So thank you. And and, and understanding my age, I think my mom's always been that liberator. I mean, she's chief amongst Mm. the people, not just the women I admire, okay? And my mom's way up there above women who are incredible, who I love. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Mrs. Pankhurst, Sojourner Truth, you know, these kind of women, uh, just incredible, incredible women. And my mom's way up there. I mean, she knew intuitively more than most people learn over a lifetime. You know, this is kind of a side note, but I was just on a Zoom call this past weekend with a bunch of um, local leaders in our community about a public school bond that we're advocating for. And all of the folks that were leading the call, they were all these amazing, really accomplished, strong black women in our community. And they went around and introduced themselves and talked about who their heroes were. And it was wild, Janice, how the absolute vast majority of those women who are out in the world, who are creating change, who are just like leading the way, pointed to their moms Mm -hmm. and just said, this is where it all started Mm -hmm. for me. And this is why I am who I am and why I believe that the work that I'm doing in the world actually matters. Well, I don't know what the age of those women would be uh, to experience where their moms were in society at that time. What I can tell you is that me being born in 1952 in the Deep South, I had a mom who had to mediate a lot in order to create a balance for her Hmm. home. And two things that I believe are fundamentally the greatest gifts I've ever received in life. One is being born to John and Elretha, those particular two people. I witnessed what it was like to be well-loved. I witnessed that economic circumstance, social circumstance, political circumstance. None of those should interfere with being well-loved. I also had those two parents teach me how to be a strong individual. Years later, where I'm serving with NGLCC and working for the LGBTQ community, the uh, women business owner communities, minority business, my company just won the top supplier award in the nation from NMSDC uh, this week. Congratulate us. I love you, that one. I love all of you. Uh, Congratulations. A top in class four supplier award. All of this stuff that I'm talking about that we work with, I think about who mom and dad were, and they taught me how to be a healthy and a happy human being. And, you know, it's like I'm telling folks right now just because it's happening to you doesn't mean it has to happen through you. 
Generational ills don't need to be repeated. Um, and women, we suffer so many because it's easy to subdue. It's also easy to sophisticate a lot of things that don't work well for women. And because we've been the caregivers, we've not always taken care of mm. ourselves. Mm. And we tend to, here's how I put it, it shouldn't hurt to love. Mm, that's good. Yeah, that's really it good. It shouldn't hurt to love. Love can sustain hurt, but it shouldn't hurt to love. People get that aching pain and we've got a lot of songs that people can fall into and, you know, very romantically, heroically express the sacrifices for love. That is not the type of love I saw my mom and dad express to each other. And they loved very well in a harsh economy, in a brutal racist society. And at a time, we didn't have a lot in front of us. The civil rights movement hadn't truly taken hold that firmly. And those people loved each other. So, wow, we could camp out in your childhood for forever, but let's let's continue on the Janice journey, if you will. I read about you were a bit of an activist within your high school that you went to, and I read that you championed the desegregation of your high school. When did that come about? Were you in high school when that happened? Had you graduated and gone back? Can you tell us a little bit about when this kind of core foundation that your parents created for you started to manifest in the world of you saying like, hey, this is happening and it's not right and I want to be a part of fixing it? Well, you put a little bit more drama on it than there really was. <laughs> okay, okay. Tell now, me about it. it simply until this year was the worst year of my life. Um, and I was in 11th grade and mm. went over to the white school, which was a long walk from home across Panola Street. Panola Street divided black from white in Tarboro in those days. And so it was farther than I'd ever been in my life at that point. I didn't do a lot of traveling around. And that walk, was one that I dreaded every day. Mm. I was smart in school academically, and we thought that it would be a good idea for white people not to think that their schools were going to get torn apart if black people went. Now, mind you, that was our approach to desegregation. Black kids go to the white school, just a few of them, and figure out you know, how we work it out. Later, uh, somewhere along the line of government, they determined it wasn't working. And so they just said, all the kids this age, this age, go here. All the kids this age, this age, go there. But when I was a part of that experiment, it really was me alone in that oh history class gosh. that identified for me just how bad it was out there and just how great mom and dad were in how they had prepared me for that bad. It was the worst year of my mm. life, as I said, up until this year. Wow. I can't imagine it. I mean, how old are you in 11th grade? I can't remember. What, like 16, 15, 16? You're at an age where, you know, most of your classmates are thinking about their weekend dates or the sweater they're going to wear to school tomorrow or what color jeans we used to wear. But that wasn't what I could think about. Nope. I had to think about how to go to the bathroom without getting caught 
in between girls who would be menacing or how to get my homework hold to the teacher without it getting torn up or even how to wait for my brothers if they were one minute late coming to pick me up to walk me back home across Panola Street. The world felt really big, really ugly, really mean. Classmates were awful. Mm. And the instructors did their best to convince me that I was subpar, inferior, and should not have crossed Panola Street that morning. It was the worst year of my life. Well, one, I want to just acknowledge that and say I'm so, so deeply sorry for that experience and for that pain. I think for anybody, for a grown adult to endure a year of that messaging, like literally day in and day out, and not just from your peers, which is so painful, but from like authority figures, right? Who are there. That that message was clear every year of growing up black in Tarboro then, but it was direct, pointed, and physically imposing for that school year. Yeah. So did you stay at that school for your senior year? I went home and I told my dad I wasn't going back. And he gave me three options, uh, one of which was not to go back. I chose to go back. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dad reminded me that every one of his 11 children were going to get to go to university. And Mm -hmm. if he had to sell everything he had to do it, we'd do it. But he'd rather that not be an option. So go get the scholarship. Wow. Wow. So you did. You went back to that all-white school. and I finished that year out of that all-white school. The next year, I knew that my school, which was, by the way, across the street from my home, was going to shut down. Patillo School was going to shut down. W.A. Patillo High School. White people were not going to send their kids to a Black school. And so it was, I remember, even at that young age of being out on the school grounds back in the days when, and I'm not being romantic about this, this is just the way it was. We would all have morning ceremonies outside, regardless of the weather. We'd raise the flag, we'd pledge allegiance, Mm -hmm. we'd sing the songs, and we'd say the prayers before we go into the classrooms uh, and school would start with the ringing of the bell. You didn't run to a classroom, you ran to the flagpole. And Mm -hmm. all these little black kids, we run up to the flagpole and we pledge allegiance to America. And then we'd sing songs and we'd say the Lord's Prayer. And then we go to class. And that I remember when I'd be out for those morning devotionals, we called them, I'd look at the buildings and I'd feel such a privilege, Hmm. uh, even at that young age, to be on such a beautiful campus and such a beautiful building. It was that old red brick that the South loved so much. And the stairs were high, so you had to deliberately walk up the stairs. And you better be careful when the weather changed, because water or snow or ice could change the walk. But we made it and I loved the wood and the I could remember the smell of the paste wax that they used with the big machines that would uh, clean those floors. And I remember the janitors and the maids who were there. They were neighbors after all. And I remember the conversations in the auditorium and my 
favorite teacher, uh, Miss Foster, who taught music. She taught us our choral programs. And, you know, those were the things that I loved. I loved going to school. I loved books. I forget how many books Forbes said I had, over 8,000 in my house right now. Oh and we're gosh. shocked that I actually read this stuff. I've read it, right? Now I buy everything on my Kindle. And if I really love it, I still go out, Liz, and buy the book in hardback in homage to the author. Uh, oh, I love that. But I just loved school so much. And so being ripped out my 11th grade year, I felt a success in completing that year. I also felt an obligation and a personal victory in going back to be one of the last graduates of W.A. Wow. Patillo High School as a segregated black school. Wow. So you graduated from that school. And then tell us about what your kind of young adulthood looked like. My young adulthood was so precious for me. All the things that mom used to talk about and mom would buy books and I'd read these books. As I journeyed to different places, I had a familiarity with them because I'd read books, you know. I'd read up under the covers with a flashlight and my dad would come in. And I know that many nights he deliberately came a little later than others. If I had mentioned where I was in a book, if I had two mm -hmm. chapters left, dad's walkthrough was going to be a little later but you know after lights out he give everybody 20 minutes to be settled and then he walk through the house and check and he'd see that flashlight and uh, oh my god and my dad would always just tap me on my shoulder kind of like turn the flashlight out and go to sleep and um haven't thought about that for years either but um mm -hmm. Cause he still taps me on my shoulder, you know, in my mind. But um, back then, he would just tap me on my shoulder and it was time to turn that flashlight out. And his hand would be waiting to take the flashlight, you know, to make sure that I, um, I got off to sleep at night. But um, my young adulthood was full and rich and very influenced by my sister, Sandy. She was the elder one of the uh, siblings and... When we were kids, the older ones took care of the younger ones, so I was kind of her baby. She'd gone off, and she lived in New York for a while, and then she moved to L.A. with the move of Motown to L.A. She and her husband worked with Motown. When I came to L.A., it's kind of paradoxical. I felt really different than everything I saw. And my sister Sandy, most people who would see her on the street would think she was white. Okay. Mm. And most people who see me know I'm black. But when I came to LA, everybody kind of carried purses with other people's initials on them and they didn't mm. wear pantyhose. And, you know, I came at a time when on the East Coast I wore pantyhose and my purse didn't have any initials on it. Right. And that kind of was the experience full stop for me. But Sandy encouraged me in so many ways and reminded me of the things that we grew up. But she mm. also taught me something powerful. I write about Sandy, I think, in both of my books in a way 
that uh, expresses my best thoughts of this incredible, incredible creature who I had the privilege of calling my sister and who I was dumbfounded that she loved me so much and would push me out in front of her. I thought of myself as being black and nappy headed and, you know, uh, in, a, in a sea of celebrity looking folk in L.A. And all Sandy saw was a brilliant young woman who really didn't know that she was mm. smart and didn't understand that you can teach people how to see you very much like what dad was telling us, you know, people treat your home the way you treat it. Um, and in this instance, my home was my body, my temple, my soul. Mm. Uh, and Sandy was teaching me all these things. So I was a young adult. I was pulled away from childhood things and I wasn't quite welcoming a lot of the adult things and she helped me make that transition mm. and she didn't simply help me find it in myself to do it she boldly dragged me to it she was quite a person you know Liz you know how PBS would run all those viewer dr membership drives? Oh, yeah, yeah. And during a particular uh, season, they started bringing on all the old black acts from uh, the 60s and the 70s. And my sister and I loved Golden Girls. And if we weren't together to watch Golden Girls, we call each other on the phone <laughs> and we buddy on Golden Girls. Well, we do that very often with the PBS specials as well. And one night I was sitting in my library and it came on and I picked up the phone and I dialed Sandy's house and the phone was ringing and ringing. And my husband looked at me and he said, who are you calling? I said, oh, I'm calling Sandy. She's got to see this. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, she sees it. And he looked up. And that's how powerful my sister and my relationship was, that mm. everything that we had shared, it was kind of like Sandy was still there to it, like she was escorting me, mm. you know? Mm. Yeah, I love that. That vision of she didn't just show me, she dragged me <laughs> to my self-worth and dragged me to this realization. Well, you know, I know a lot of black women who will do that. Maybe white women yeah. do too, but I know a <laughs> lot of black women who will pull your chin up and push your butt forward and say, go at it. You know, <laughs> I love it. What an absolute gift. So you got this $900 loan from your mother that brought your savings. Actually, I saved 900. My mom loaned me 600. Okay. But hey, we go okay. and we'll, we'll account for inflation, maybe <laughs> in, in the storytelling. Well, no, here's what I'll say. My mom said that's one of the best investments she ever oh, made. Oh my so. gosh, I can imagine. I can imagine it. It brought your savings up to a whopping 15 Hundred dollars, and you started Act One Group, which is now a multi-billion-dollar business. You go, Liz. You go, Liz. <laughs> in the front office of a Beverly Hills rug shop, you had a fax machine, a phone, and kind of a list Didn't of contacts. Didn't have the fax machine first oh, day. Okay, that okay. was my Judy Jetson moment, baby. When I got that, I knew life. But you know who Judy Jetson is? Oh yeah, oh yeah. You're oh, on yeah. the up and up. I, I, I thought I was Judy Jetson then, hon. Had a fabulous address though. That is amazing. I love that. So you went on to build this, you know, multi-billion-dollar company. Tell us a little bit in this kind of uh, last segment that we have together. Is there a season, is there a moment kind of in your story, and this can be personal, this can be professional, that you would look at as kind of a, a pluck up, a season of hardship, of rejection, and tell us a little bit about that. 
Um, here's what I'm going to share with you, because, you know, as you've been taking me on this journey and having me revisit rooms in my head that I haven't been for a while, mm. <sighs> I think generationally. I think about my grandma, Dora, who used to walk around Tarboro in the morning. When I say walk around Tarboro in the morning, when I was a kid, a lot of the streets didn't have paving on them and the sidewalks were dirt. Mm. And she'd walk around to our house in the morning and she'd have on high heels. And as kids, we actually played in her high heels. We pull the dirt up over our legs and it would leave a frost on it, our little black legs. And we, mm. we pretended it was silk stockings that we were wearing because, you know, they didn't have stockings in our color anyway. So um, in any event, I think about her and how she would insist to my mom that um, she could have elegance and kids and all of that mm. stuff. Then I think about how my mom was for us and had us stitch the edges of squares. We cut out of old clothing and sheets and make dinner napkins because she said, we would learn to eat well. And she didn't want the mm. first time we used napkins to be when we went out. So we grew up as kids using dinner napkins. Later, she told us it was also cheaper than paper because uh, we used to wash clothes in the back in a big tub outside. Then I think about when I was in my tub and my own daughter came to me and she was very, very young. She was not yet 13. And she was being considered for university by Ivy League schools. Uh, look, the kid is bright. I don't know where she gets it from. She's right and left brain gifted. Yeah, um, I have no idea. No idea where she gets it from. <laughs> um, and she came in. And whenever we would have our private moments, um, usually it was me in the tub and I had this tray that fit across my tub and she'd jump in with me even as a little kid sometimes she'd read her book while I did my work on this tub and we'd turn the jets on and we'd sit in the tub together and she had these big buffalo tears and she asked why we were pushing her away she didn't see going off to Harvard as a gift she saw it as a punishment wow and I had to struggle with myself. Uh, was I going to treat this young girl's gift as a curse? Wow. And we had one of the longest conversations of our lives in that tub when she wasn't yet 13. And I remembered the walk that I took from my home across Panola Street, my 11th grade year. And I asked myself, how far more monumental is it? that my daughter would be taking a flight mm. to attend a school, not yet 13. She became a Trojan and my son, Brett, 14 months younger than Kate, uh, had followed UCLA all of his childhood and became a Trojan overnight when his sister went there and he followed her to USC. He got his graduate degree there as well. And so I have these successes and then I'm challenging myself around some things mm. and I'm putting into the universe negatives about myself mm. one evening and my daughter pulls me aside and she flips the script. No longer is it my grandma encouraging my mom or my mom encouraging me. It's now my daughter 
flipping the script and telling me, you told me I have everything I need to be. You told me it's not what they call me, but what I answer to. And you told me what my mind can conceive and believe I can achieve. And if you don't believe it, how do I keep living it, mom? Hmm. And I have to say, of all the moments of, in my life, that is the thing that I think will glow brightest for me hmm. when my lights dim. Wow. Is my daughter teaching me the things that generations of women in her family gifted forward to her? And I not even then learn to live them for myself until she gave it back to me. Yeah. That's she, the circle of strength. That's the circle of strength that I live for. I love for. that. I love that she reflected that truth back to you in the moment where you needed it. But what I also love about that is that it would have been so easy for you in that moment. You know, anytime you're in a position of authority, whatever it is, personal, professional, in your family, you've got this child, right, that looks up to you. And I'm sure you worked so hard to create that opportunity for her and to encourage her and to inspire her and to hear in that moment, like, hey, all of this encouragement and equipping, I'm not receiving it as that way. It feels like you're pushing me away. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing, Liz. When I was taking that long walk, it was to desegregate a school. My daughter, we're talking about somebody who's looking at Ivy League school in one generation. So I do get accused often of being a Pollyanna because I always speak to the positive and to the possible, you know, mm. but it was still a curse for her if it was pulling her away. She wasn't going to university. She was being yanked out of high school, yeah. you know, a grade school, actually, you know. And so I think it allowed me to understand the personal journey everyone takes. Yeah. Sometimes that journey is economic. Sometimes that journey is racial. Sometimes that journey is about your personal choices or how you've been built differently than other people. Sometimes that journey simply is a shift in your own psyche. But everybody's on a journey and we all want to go to the same place. We're simply taking different paths to get there. Mm, that's so good. I, I love that you were able in that moment even where it would have been so easy to get defensive, to get angry, to dismiss or disvalidate, you know, her feelings because obviously. Oh, no, no, no. That wouldn't have been easy. I'm Elrita Bryant's daughter, John Bryant's daughter. That wouldn't have been easy. Now, don't forget who raised me, Liz. I won't. I'm not going to. I'm not going to forget Elrita. I promise you. Elrita. We know you're listening, Elrita. Hey, 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 look, you're talking to my mama. That's Miss Elrita to oh, you. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I told Ms. you, Elrita. Give her her. Look, look, don't take her crown, Liz. <laughs> I love it. I stand corrected. Multi-billion uh, and Miss Elrita. I stand corrected. Oh, I love it so much. Well, thank you so much. What a joy to have you on the show. Thank you for opening those, as you so beautifully put it, those uh, rooms to your memories so generously to us. What a gift that you would go there with us and that through your storytelling and remembering, give us a taste of a journey that isn't ours, right? That is yours, but that we get to benefit from um, simply by your generosity 
of sharing it with us. We're so grateful for you and so inspired by you. Thank you so much for your time. Hey, look, I'm throwing that thanks right back at you, girl, because even though you did bring a few tears that I wasn't prepared to have today, <laughs> you brought a lot of joy and you bring a lot of joy. And I, I, I started out telling you what a fan I am. Aww. Let me just share with you that the work that you're doing is um, it's a lot bigger than a conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate those words very, very deeply. Wow, 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 wow. I am so grateful for that conversation and for her time and her wisdom and just to get to share an hour with um, such an incredibly successful founder of a multi-billion dollar company who has so much pluck and wisdom and generosity to share with us. I hope by listening to this, you feel encouraged, inspired, and a little bit less alone. Also, can we just give a collective slow clap to Janice's mama? I mean, come on. Come on, people. Mom goals. You guys, I'd like to thank my amazing producers at Human Group Media for helping put this show together. For updates and announcements about the show, you can visit LizBohannon.co or follow us on Instagram. I'm at LizBohannon or at SincerelyHuman. That's all, you guys. I'll catch you later in the next episode.